coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. <laughs> This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Hello and welcome to The Buffet with Chad and Scooch from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman with the Action Network. On the phone with me from the Orleans, representing all the Boyd Gaming books in the state of Nevada, is Bob Scoochie, who is going to talk as soon as I'm done with the rundown of what's on the show today so people can stay tuned and be excited. Because after Scooch and I are done talking, uh, Ryan Rosillo of uh, ESPN fame and now podcast fame and uh, who famously left ESPN earlier this year uh, is going to come on. He's going to play You Bet Your Life, talking about the biggest risk he's taken in his life, how much you want to bet. We can figure out what the answer to that one's going to be. And um, so that'll be interesting. Scooch is going to talk to me. We got a lot to talk about. It's Super Bowl's done, but we still got a lot to talk about. How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Wow. That's interesting how you changed the tone in your voice because literally 30 seconds ago before we started recording, you were like sleepy drunk post-celebration of your two-year anniversary of your engagement that happens to coincide with Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I made a quick turnaround there. Yeah. There's lots of wine being, uh, being drunk last night. So it was a little bit, uh, celebratory evening. Jeez. Like, I, it's like, <laughs> like the tone in your voice and like what you were trying to get at with the tone in your voice and like, yeah, celebratory <laughs> evening. Like, yeah. come on, man. <laughs> What do you want me to say? Where uh, did you go out? What'd you guys do? You, what'd, you, what'd you and Jen do? Your beautiful bride, Jen. What'd you guys do? Oh, went out to a nice dinner, opened up some wine, came back, came back home, opened up some more nice wine, uh, went up did to... You... No, go ahead. No, just went up to our cigar room slash wine room. <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, you know, I guess you could figure the rest out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hold on. I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around the wine room and the cigar room first, and then I can move on to the rest of the visuals. But um, I didn't realize that it was a wine room and a cigar room in addition to a courtyard in your yeah. Italian villa. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we really did up this this room pretty nicely. I mean, it's all coffered wood ceilings and uh, um, you know a big kind of entertainment center in the in the middle with uh, the whole Sono sound system and uh, just wood paneling and it it really looks nice. But it's separate from the rest of the house. So you know, when I smoke my cigars, there's no smoke that gets in the rest of the house. But as we were doing it, we realized there had to be a lot of wine being drunk there, too. So we had to put in you know, the wine cooler, the bar, the whole thing. So uh, so she calls it the wine room, and I call it the cigar room. So it's the wine slash cigar room. What do you mean it's separate from the house? Like, is it it's separate yeah. wing? Does it have its own atmosphere? Like, what is it? Yeah. It's Well, from the courtyard, you just go up the stairs, and it's kind of a separate uh, type of a, a, a casita. That uh, you know has its own HVAC and so own air and heat, so it doesn't the vents aren't connected to the rest of the house. But you get there through the courtyard, so it's it's separate, but it's part of the same property. You are living the life. <laughs> I like. I don't even think I truly understood how like lux your life really was. <laughs> Come on. I just I like I don't understand it. I have like water in half my basement. I have like I don't have a cigar room or a wine room. I don't have I don't have that. You don't have that. You don't have a little separate room. Do you have a man cave? Do you have Do you have a little place where you can go with you know alone with your thoughts and 
Anything like um, that? Yeah. It's called okay. the bathroom. That's <laughs> oh, no. That's what most people who don't have courtyards and casitas do. No wonder, like, you're so happy in your marriage. You guys are living, like, in a lap of luxury. And, like, you know, Jen's kids are older, so they're not really, like, you know, a hassle. And, yeah. like... Yeah. Oh, things, yeah. Things are things are good. I'm not complaining. I mean, you know, I would have liked to have won the Super Bowl, but you know, that you, you get you take what you can get. I can't decide who's having a better life, Scooch or Mrs. Scooch. <laughs> She's very happy. At least she tells me. So, I, I think we're pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. That's two. That's kind of kind of how you said it. You're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so three years on the engagement last night, and then it'll be two years in April. Nice work. Congratulations on that. You're making Thank it you. go of it. Really, yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Right. You you have overcame, all I overcame the odds. I overcame the odds on that one, didn't I? You really did. I mean, I can remember talking about it on the podcast many years ago when you broke up with a woman who's. Um, had a seven-year-old daughter and something about like the daughter was interfering, interfering with you being able to watch a USC football game. Yeah. It was the night that the USC played Fresno. And I remember that Reggie Bush, uh, big run that still makes the highlight reels, but SC was like a 20 something point favorite and they were down big. And yeah, she was not uh, letting me watch that game. And I, I knew it kind of wasn't going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> does does Jen know that story? Yes, she does. Did you how early in your relationship? This is a good good barometer. How early in your relationship did you tell her this story? So I think that's what makes our our marriage work is because we talked quite a bit even when uh when we were just friends before we actually started dating. So she knew a lot of these stories before we even got together. So it wasn't a big big surprise and you know we uh, we 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 met at at work so we kind of knew a little bit about each other's um you know lives before we we started dating so yeah she knew that story it's a beautiful las vegas casino love story yeah right <laughs> it really is oh my god that's so f i feel like the the risk calculus on um on her marrying you was decreased because she knew all of your challenges and idiosyncrasies before she walked down the aisle. And it was a beautiful aisle, by the way. I remember yeah. being at the wedding. That was, that was a wedding. That was like you guys coming, her coming in on that boat and like <laughs> sunny and beautiful. Like that was a day. It was classic. And, and you're being very kind when you say idiosyncrasies because she calls it my craziness because <laughs> she says, yeah, not too many people can, uh, can put up with all your, your little crazy things. I, I'm pretty particular and she, she puts up with quite a bit. I'll give her that. Yeah. There's a little bit of that too. Hey, so, uh, you know, go just, ahead. Just, I was just going to say real quick. I mean, the, the first day I ever spoke with her before I actually met her, was on the morning of the NCAA tournament. It was that Thursday of March Madness, about 10 minutes before the, the, the games were tipping off. And I was as busy as ever. It was the first year that we had taken over all these new uh, properties at the, the coast properties. And w bets are flying. The screen is lighting up like crazy. The people are in line. And I get a call. It's like, nine o'clock in the morning and she was working a, a compliance and said, Hey, my name's Jennifer and we need to get together for some uh, title 31 training on your staff. And I, I, I was so like, I had no idea. I was so mad that like what to say to this person. I was like, do you know how busy I am right now? Is it possible? Just maybe we can kind of put this off. Like, I don't know, another week or two. <laughs> <laughs> And she always said I was as nice as can be. So maybe you talk about putting on that other voice, you know, uh, I, I was a lot nicer, I guess, in real life than I was in my own head. 
I think that's always the case with you, Scooch. You probably are like the kind of guy who in your head you're thinking, oh, my God, I was such a jerk to this person. And like on the outside, they would think, oh, my God, that Bob Scucci is the sweetest guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it must be. All right. Listen, All right. we got to get to a little laugh. Okay. Don't forget, sure. uh, Ryan Rosillo is coming on the podcast after this. Um, and what we're, one of the things we're going to talk about with Ryan is – NBA and sort of how you assess the league after all the trade deadline stuff. And Scooch, I think that's what I want to talk about with you as well, because um, the Cavs all of a sudden make these trades. They've been a team that have been horrible against the spread all season long, a team whose, you know, probably implied odds were significantly lower than even the bookmakers were giving them credit for to win the title. And they make this trade and all of a sudden, you know, for two games at least, they're world beaters and playing better defense and um, looking like a much different team. So tell me about all your Cavs adjustments as soon as the trade happened and then what you've done in sort of the week since. Yeah, you know, when the when the trades first happened, we knew it was going to be a completely different team. Uh, but as far as adjusting like the futures, we were a little you know, hesitant to, to make a big adjustment because we still wondered, you know, how the team was going to play together. Uh, I mean – Right out of the gate, I mean, they look great, like you said, uh, and that's when we actually started getting the money on the on the futures. It was after the first game, so uh, I think a lot of the betting public were a little skeptical too on whether or not, you know, they had enough to to kind of compete with, uh, you know, teams teams like the Warriors and 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 the Rockets, you know, down the road. So, um, the the money came in after the first couple games, I would say, but initially we were a little hesitant. Well, so what have you adjusted them to now? So we're down to seven to one on them, and you know, at so at one point we were as high as fifteen to one. Uh, so, uh, and then right after right after the trade, we went down to about twelve to one, and then after the first game, we went to ten to one, and now we're down to seven to one. Is that because uh, did you, as they say in the business, move it on air, or did you adjust because of liabilities? The first move we made on air, just right off of the the, the trade, just to respect the the, the new players uh, a little bit right out of the gate before they played. Uh, then the second move was after the after the game, and then the third move was on some bets that came in. So uh, it was a combination of all three, and uh, I still, I mean, we're still getting pretty decent action on some other teams. So it's not like they're just all coming in on on just the Cavs right now. Well, who else are you getting action on right now? Like, we're, what did the? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the Rockets are getting getting quite a bit actually, and uh, I, we don't do real well uh, on the Rockets. I said, of, uh, you know, out of some of the other teams, uh, we obviously do the the best on the Warriors because they were such a prohibitive uh, favorite throughout the year. Uh, the Celtics kind of crept up on us a little bit at the, the beginning of the year, but we still, still do okay. Um, but the Rockets are, you know, we're down to uh, four to one on the Rockets, and and we don't do real well on them. Well, you mean because there's just such a huge liability on them right now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just on the futures, I'm I'm just talking specifically just with futures. Are there certain teams right now where uh, you feel, and it's a little bit like the NFL, only it happens at hyperspeed. Certain NBA teams where you feel like you haven't made adjustments to their lines quick enough. Um, I mean, after the fact, uh, you know, I'll go go back hold, to the Rockets. Yeah, yeah. Hold on, let me rephrase that question. Yeah. In the NFL, you're very slow to make changes on your power ratings um, because you don't want to overadjust. So it could be half a season before you've really made a full adjustment on a team like yeah. the Rams this past year, right? So, yeah. what is the comparison for the NBA? How often? And how quickly are you making adjustments on teams in the NBA because the volume of games is higher? We we hardly make adjustments. Let me let me put it that way. Especially if you want to compare it to the NFL. The NFL every single week when the games kick off, kind of take down the odds. We start watching the games and then we repost the odds based on how that week's games are going. And then that's going on throughout the entire season. You can't do that game by game with with basketball because there's there's too many games. And with the NBA, especially in the last 10 years, it's kind of like you have those six contending teams that, that are kind of the favorites 
at the beginning of the year, and they pretty much stay the same, and they haven't changed very much. It's very rare in the NBA that we're going to get a team that started the season 60-1 to and ended up playing in the finals. I mean, I can't remember. The last time I, I think it happened, and it really doesn't really count because it was when the Celtics got uh, uh, Garnett and Pierce and uh, it was a completely different team from the off season. So I don't, I don't think the NBA is very comparable to the NFL in terms of how we move the the, the future. So it's rare that we make big adjustments. But, but I actually, I was actually talking yeah. about power rating adjustments on the teams game by game. So you know, oh, our, okay. you know, from a, from a spread perspective. Yeah, and a couple of our guys that uh, we use as consultants have a couple of different methods of of adjusting their their power rankings. Like some of them will take uh, the final score, uh, the margin of the final score versus the point spread. So like from one to four points, if they cover the spread from one to four points, it gets adjusted by half a point in the power ranking. If they cover the spread by you know, five to 10 points, it gets adjusted by a point in the power rankings. And then I have others that actually take, you know, statistics up until a certain point of the game and take away a lot of kind of garbage time. And they account for, you know, they'll, they'll look at the third quarter scores of the NBA games and then just kind of make a, a an adjustment for the fourth quarter, taking away some of the end of the games that, that are really non-competitive. So e- each one of our consultants has a, has a different way of uh, adjusting form, but they don't get adjusted that much. I mean, the, the, the rankings for the, the top tier teams are pretty much the same from the beginning of the year, uh, you know, barring any big personnel changes like the Cavs. So the that's NBA, a rarity. The NBA is interesting that way. You can pretty much look at the future odds before every season and one of those teams that is the top four ends up winning the title. Yeah, it's been that way for like the last 10, 15 years. And it, like I said, in, in take some of the other sports, you know, hockey, uh, baseball. We've had some teams that were 200 to one the year before. The year the Tampa Bay Rays went from last place to first place, they opened up this, the season at 300 to one and made it to the World Series before losing to the Phillies. I, I can't remember the last time we got a basketball, an NBA team. That went that same way, especially with the same personnel, you know, going from 150 to one or 200 to one before the season and then winning the title. All right, Scooch, I got a bounce to go call Ryan Rosillo for the next part of our podcast. But before I go, um, if you're looking at the NBA and you could tell me one team outside of the four that you think is the most interesting from a value perspective. So let's say the four are Celtics. Cavs, Rockets, Warriors. Give me the one team outside the four that a better should look at for value. Uh, boy. I, I got uh, an answer. I got I, an answer. Yeah, to, I'll say Toronto. Oh, that's what I was going to say. No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's some value there. You can get uh, Toronto at about 12 to 1 right now. Uh, I mean, they're, they're playing well and they're in first place in the division. I, I, I think there's a little value there. All right, Bob Scucci, let's uh, tune in next week for more of the Scucci soap opera. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to find out what, what like February 20th is the anniversary of and to hear how <laughs> Jen feels about how your relationship is going right now. Okay, sounds good. All right, Scooch, talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank Enjoy. You. Hey, listen, happy yeah. Valentine's Day to you and your bride. Hey, same to you and everybody. All right, joining me now on the buffet, honestly, a guy who is probably the best reader at ESPN, who asked the smartest questions of every writer who ever came on his radio show, Ryan Rosillo, who is on his basically first day in L.A. right now, uh, has a tremendously popular podcast on ESPN. Now he's joining me on the buffet. What's going on, brother? Nothing, man. I'm, uh, I'm hanging out with my new spot here, the Equinox, which is it's funny. I almost joined this when I lived in West Hartford just because I liked the gym so much. I was going to drive down to Greenwich. Like once a month and then I go, okay, that's, that's kind of a loser move to join a gym that costs this much to use it once a day that you have to drive an hour and a half to, but now I don't because it's just up the street and uh, I'm pumped, man. Really happy. So you had to move 3000 miles away to join the Equinox. That's essentially what you're saying. <laughs> that is a very efficient way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like the surrounding area a lot too. So 
Well, congratulations. So one of the things like I wanted you to come on the podcast is because we have a segment on the podcast called You Bet Your Life. And I, I basically say to someone, tell me about the biggest risk you've taken um, and then what happened next. And then there's the factors that went into making that decision. And so we were just talking for 20 minutes before we even started really officially recording. And we were talking a lot about uh, this writer, Eric Larson, who you're reading right now, who I love, um, who writes these great nonfiction books. And most famously, he wrote the book, Devil in the White City. And, you know, Grinnell, who's recording, who's like uh, producing the podcast, this is like an easy way for him to bring that in right now. So, Grinnell, you can just drop that in there and then we'll find a way to get out of it. I was reading that Eric Larson uh, piece in the Devil's Garden thing about the, the U.S. ambassador to Germany and his family yeah. living over there prior to the. Honestly, like Devil in the White City and then and Dead Wake are way better. This is thorough. I can't imagine writing one of these books. This freaking guy goes to like everybody's diaries and then lines up the timeline. The book itself is kind of boring, but like the lead up to Hitler's Germany is incredible because he just was like, all right, I'm going to go first. <laughs> and he started killing other Germans. Like, we're, like before we're even talking about the horrific things he did after the fact. And they just started killing out anybody that could challenge him in different factions. And people were like, wait a minute, what's this guy doing? And then he had a, they had a press conference and he's like, yeah, it was all legal. We passed the law the day before, so we're good. Moving on. And I was like, right. Jesus, this is crazy. But the rest of the book wasn't worth it. So um, one of the books that I've written was a book called The Detonators, which I think we talked about, which was about these guys who this like terrorist attack in New York Harbor in 1916 that blew up downtown Manhattan. And um, it was all pulled off by Germans and by the German army uh, prior to World War I. And so the case itself, like, extended into World War II um, and sort of the U.S. having to deal with Germany and Hitler and all the subterfuge. The research I did for that book, like how to write a book like that, which you're probably going through a lot of this now, um, is was Devil in the White City. And uh, he also wrote another book about like a hurricane that devastated Galveston. And Thunderstruck? So, yes. I think – is it – no, Thunderstruck was um, something about – no, Thunderstruck, I think, was about electricity. Uh, uh, was was it? About, I know he has another one. When you talk about a storm, I just figured, okay, I'll throw Thunder. Because I know he has one other one that I haven't read or two other ones that I haven't read. He's got like six or seven. And I think his first one was about this hurricane in Galveston. I read that too. And they're amazing, and he's phenomenal. Um, the way he does a narrative with sort of nonfiction is, uh, you know, if my book had sold, I'd be doing that instead of this. He's in a, he is like awesome at it. I just can't fathom being that good at like he must love it. Like he must the, the people close to him must go okay. He's doing another one, and there's no way to get around this. Uh, the detail, you know, the color of the scenery that he's describing, and, and then it's all real. Like one person I known who read Devil in the White City didn't know it was nonfiction. Yeah, <laughs> I was like no, no, it's. It's real. I can't wait for that movie. And I, I love that whole book. I mean, I, I loved it because uh, I actually enjoyed the architecture thing, even though everybody felt like when they were reading the architecture chapters, they just wanted to turn back to the serial killer stuff. But um, it is funny, though, I think after, well, I shouldn't say funny, but after all, like the Churchill love that after reading Dead Wake, like he basically was responsible for getting U.S. involved in the in the first world war because he just was like, yeah, we're going to let this submarine blow up this ship and we're not going to warn anybody. We're not going to warn the ship. I mean, I feel like that's, that's what he's alluding to there. Uh, oh, totally. But yeah. Yeah. Where he's just like, okay, so the only way to beat the Germans is we're going to get the Americans involved here. And by getting the Americans involved, we won't tell one of their ships that German subs are all over the place waiting to take these big passenger ships out. And it's just crazy that you're like, Oh man, like talk about, and yet he's a hero. Like Churchill's considered a hero. And I don't know. I don't know how that would play today. We'd have a massive, like people would tweet like crazy that he wasn't a hero. I know that part. Well, if you've seen like The Darkest Hour, which was that movie that just came out just about came out. Sort of how yeah, he managed World War II, there's that whole scene where he basically goes on the radio and lies to the British public about the status of the war and Hitler and how everything's being responded to completely bald-faced lies about it and uh he still goes on to be the hero 
No, that's a really good point because I always wonder like, okay, what, what, what are we being told? How much are we being lied to? And do we kind of deserve it? Do we kind of deserve to be lied to? Because if everybody in power told us the truth of every single element, every single decision along the way, and we sit here and debate all these things, it'd probably get in the way of any kind of progress. But I'm sure some people would listen to this and be like, no, we, we deserve the truth. We deserve to know every single time. It's almost like a trade, you know, where a guy gets traded, he always gets really pissed off about it and says, oh, you know, they were shopping me and they didn't even have, they weren't even man enough to tell me. And then they didn't tell me face to face or blah, blah, and all this stuff. And it's like, if I were a GM, I wouldn't go to every practice and be like, you know, to my second best player or whatever and say to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example here, Danilo Gallinari. I'd be like, hey, Danilo, I took a call today. I had a call from another team. They made us a trade offer. I did turn it down, but I will keep you posted because I want you to always be in the loop and us to not, like, that's not realistic. You know, things don't really work that way. So when I think of, like, history and, you know, when I read post-Obama stuff and the involvement in the Middle East and, I don't know, maybe I'm just too rational about some things, but like I'll listen to or read about some sort of military decision that people after the fact will just crush Obama for. I'll be like, well, I can see how we get to this kind of crossroads and said, I'm kind of screwed either way. So I can arm people or I can not arm people. And if I don't, and then there's an uprising, then it's my fault. And then when I arm people after I said, I don't want to put more guns in this part of the world, then I'm wrong there. So you know what? I'm just not going to put more guns over there. And I'm reading it going, yeah, maybe it didn't work out, but I can totally understand how we came to that point. So I think it's really funny the way we kind of look at history and I don't know. I guess I'm almost arguing that maybe we don't deserve to be updated on every single thing that's impacting the world. Well, you can't do your job as a diplomat and as a politician and as a world leader if you are trying to constantly figure out how am I going to frame this very nuanced, challenging subject for an audience of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um that don't understand the full context and don't understand the relationships and don't haven't played the game of chess to the point where we know what the next five moves are with either decision and what the calculus is in those risk factors and saying, all right, if we go this way, this could happen. This is sort of a, a proportional response or this is a, a challenge that we can, this is a, a, an outcome we can live with, even if it's bad. Like you just can't explain that to 300 million people. Like you can only do it after the fact, which is why you get this sort of big addresses after, you know, bin Laden's been killed and why we made the decisions we made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. And at that point too, you're just going, all right, you know, despite everything being such a battle and how people see things and say, well, you should have done it this way, or why did you not think of this? Or you should have handled this. I mean, there's nothing easier in life and after something happens say oh no no no! you should have done it you should have done it all these different ways like i never i hate when we have like in sports we'll have somebody apologize for something right and a guy screws up he does something wrong and he apologizes okay so now we get it just ranking on sincere rank like in the sincere meter where are we at one to ten okay okay well he wasn't super sincere then we have the body language expert come on and be like you know what he turned his shoulders in that means he's lying and you just go, all right, okay, let's keep doing this. So you're right. So when something like Bin Laden happens, you're going, all right, Bin Laden's out, and this is huge for us because now we can go up and we can, you know, stick out our chests. And like I would hope, and this is me speaking as if I were a politician going, I would hope that there wouldn't be a thing after the fact going, hey, was this handled the right way? And, of course, that's actually what happens. And that's why, you know, to be a politician – you know, I always kind of think it's funny that people go, oh, I hate how politicians talk or I want somebody real or I don't want somebody who's part of the system, part of the machine. I go, you know what? Politicians talk to us this way because that's the way we have to be talked to. Like this is we sit there and we pick our side and then we completely sell out for the one guy and then rip the other dude who just isn't aligned with my ideology. Uh, ideology. You know, that's why I think it's always so funny because I, I listen to these guys and I can't stand them. You know, I'm not very political at all. I can't stand these guys. They insult our intelligence for the most part. But they talk to us this way because if they can bend something in some angle that their base still supports, they're like, yeah, I'll just go with this. Like, this is BS, but at least I know my base is still going to believe it, so I'll just say it this way. And then everybody complains about the way this stuff is, is relayed to us. And I go, yeah, but if they told us the truth all of the time and we're totally frank, we would crush them for that too. The same way we do it with athletes. When somebody goes, you know what, I don't think this team is any good. Or, you know what, I don't think we can win with this quarterback. Or I'm not sure that our coach puts us in the best position to win. Like, we ask for all that sincerity, but as soon as we get it, we go, I can't believe that guy was so forthcoming. 
Absolute truth, man. You can't win with that. And you are incredibly passionate about writing. And that's one of the reasons you're in LA. So tell me about the biggest risk you've taken and what happened next. Well, this is it, man. I mean, you know, when, when people talk about getting involved in, in sports talk and, and getting the show, I wasn't risking anything. I was a bartender, you know, living above uh, a restaurant that served terrible pasta. Uh, you know, I was still going to school in the town or I was still working, still bartending in the, in the town that I went to school at. And, you know, at first it's like, Hey, this is fun. I have a, a nice little life. I love growing to Vermont. And then, you know, a few years go by and you finish school and, you know, your dad starts asking you tougher questions about your plans for the future. And you got classmates coming back up to visit with a fiance or somebody that's about to be a fiance. And I'm, I'm pouring them Bud Lights and I'm going, all right, man, like, this is not the plan. This is, and there's nothing against that. Like sometimes I wish I could be just more content and more happy with simple things, but I'm just, I've never been that way. And I know I'm never going to be that way. So, you know, I got involved in, in sports and, you know, you know, the story worked for a minor league team and, you know, I don't know, 15, 16 years later, I've left ESPN after, after 12 years at ESPN. And, you know, the cool thing about the ESPN, I don't know if this is us taking a break from each other. Uh, I can use relationship analogies for everything, but I, I don't know. I just felt like the right time. And, and we've been actually really cool about it. This is, this has gone much better than maybe I would have imagined. You know, we've had some pretty honest conversations with, with people uh, that make decisions over there that kind of understand why I made the decision I made. And, you know, this isn't necessarily done, but, you know, the reason I needed to do this now is that I feel like even though this is a much bigger risk, I just wanted to see if I could write TV shows. And I'd had some ideas that I've been kicking around for a while. I took a shot at it a couple of years ago. Uh, I had an idea. I wrote, I, I would say, probably an embarrassing script, how bad it was, but I was just trying to figure out how to do it. Like, just because you read a Robert McKee book and, and buy the updated final draft program doesn't mean you're just going to bang out, um, you know, a few good men. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, it's one of those things where like, I, I kept telling everybody when I was bartending that I wanted to be a talk show host and then I did it. So some, some of the times I feel really stupid about telling anybody what I want to do here and trying to write for television. But if it doesn't work, I'm going to be like, man, I, I told everybody what I wanted to do. And, and now I'm, I'm doing sports. Well, I think I would still do some form of sports if it's with ESPN or if it's not, you know, the podcast is going really, really well. So I don't know that that would ever be a, a door that I would close, but I'm, I just didn't really feel all that challenged anymore. You know, I, I really like doing the daily radio show, but I, I can't imagine what the feeling would be like to create something and to write it all down and then have somebody go, you know what, we love this and we want to buy it and we want to make this a show and be able to say like, I, I fucking created that man. Sorry to swear, but like, that's just how I feel. And that's what I, want to do and that's what i plan on doing so that's that's i got really a bug a couple of years ago and, and pitching to 14 networks and going over 14 uh i didn't talk really during the pitch and that always pissed me off so i feel like if i'm going to do it again i'm going to do it more on my terms or align myself with um some people that are really pumped to work with me and you know that's that's what i'm doing i wake up every day and i write and i'm, I'm like the seventh draft of this pilot right now and it's really hard some days and some days it's a lot of fun when you feel like you nailed writing down a scene and then a really established producer or writer sends you back notes and says, hey, you're still not there yet. So uh, I got some time, but we'll, uh, we'll figure this out. At what point you had a radio show for a long time. It's going really well. You have this bug. At what point does the, the switch flip and you're like, I just don't want to do the radio show anymore. Like, I feel like the, 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 Seesaw has gone to the other direction. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm always, I think a lot of people like will want to ask me, you know, what were you upset about with ESPN or what were you mad about? I mean, a lot of the stuff I already said on the show. Oh, don't, I, no, no, know, no, no, no. That's, that's, that's actually not my question. I know, like, no, I know. It's, I know it's that. not about like, what I'm, did ESPN do? It's like in your head, you were probably very happy and thinking about like doing this for a while. There must've been something long before you even, before there was any interaction with ESPN where you're like, I think it's time for me to do this. That would be the impetus to even have a conversation. Oh yeah. No, I was going to set that up. I, I know that you weren't like asking me to be like, all right, tell me who you don't like. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I, I didn't really feel like I, I didn't really feel like I was growing. Um, and, and I don't really know that that's debatable and people there have agreed. I go, yeah, you know, probably right. So, uh, 
like, I put so much time into that show and it was really the only way I knew how to do it. And I didn't have any balance. And I was living in Connecticut. I wasn't, wasn't real happy. And I had always had this, this bug. Like the weird thing is, is that right before I moved to Boston after working for this minor league baseball team, and that was 2002, I was working construction uh, for my father. And part of my deal was they had bought this little beat up cottage and, and they said, you will let you live there for free, but you got to do the work on the house in the meantime. So, you know, I'd get up and I would shingle or I would do, you know, some of the, some of the work around the house. I mean, the thing was kind of beat up and, you know, some other job sites I'd be out there. I remember one day I, I dug eight dry wells off of uh, this massive house he was building. And that was the worst because you get to dig these trenches off of the rain spouts. And then you get to dig 36 inches down, 36 across and run these trenches um, from the, the gutters off of the, the bottom of the house, you know, away from the house so that you have the water table, you know, all pouring away from the house. And then uh, you got to fill it with rocks and then cover it all back up. And I had to do eight of those. And it took me a, like legitimately an hour to do each one. And I came home and this girl actually had come down from Boston to visit me because she thought like I was having this awesome summer vineyard life. And I, I wasn't. Uh, and I came back and I was just covered covered and I went all right you know I don't mind hard work I've worked hard you know for him most of my life and then I just went this sucks like I gotta like what are you doing like I gotta figure something out here and as I was sending out tapes of my minor league baseball announcing which wasn't that good uh, luckily I just had a deep voice but I was I was writing this script in 2002 you know I was sitting there writing out this whole thing and I, I don't know it's just you know how it is, right? Like you probably write and then you probably have some other project that you use as a distraction from the thing that you're supposed to get done. Am I right? Like yeah, you do totally. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for a long writing, time I called it a full-time job. <laughs> so, but I mean, like, would you find yourself getting stuck on the thing that mattered and going to work on something that didn't matter, but it kind of helped you get the, the priority done? Oh yeah. It completely focuses you. Like all of a sudden you'll be, you know, for me, it's when I was editing at ESPN, the magazine, and um, I was writing books on the side, but like I'd write the book in the morning, I'd go to work, I'd write the book at night. And all of a sudden you'd be working on something and your mind would be clear of sort of the screen in front of you. And you would immediately get a crystallized idea of what it is you're supposed to do in that segment of the book that you're trying to write that will help you get from one point A to point B. Yeah, because it sucks. It sucks so hard when you're like, okay, I know everything I want to do after this. I just have to get there. Like, what's the perfect way to get there? And, you know, when it doesn't happen, you just can get stuck. And you're like, great, an hour's gone by and my kitchen's clean. But I, can't, I know how I want to end this, but how the hell am I going to get there where it actually makes some sense? So I was coming home and, you know, that was, that was only 25, 26. Yeah, 26. And I would, I would work on that at night. Like, I just needed a distraction. I needed to do something that made me feel like, okay, Things are not great right now. Things are not working out. Um, but you're going to be okay. And, you know, we're going to swing for the fences here. And as I was writing that, and, dude, in 2002, that thing would have been so bad. I can't even imagine how bad it would have been. You know, I didn't really develop any B and Z storylines all that well. Uh, but it was, it was fun. I really had fun. And then I ended up getting a job on the air in Boston. So that was it. And I didn't touch it again until probably a couple years ago. It's so funny how those things happen, right? I remember when I I wrote this book, The Odds, about guys who've been in sports for a living, and I got the book deal in 99. At the same time, I had written a TV pilot based on the first book I had written about playground basketball and um, sent it to a buddy of mine who at the time was in development at DreamWorks. He ended up becoming the president of Paramount Pictures. And... Um, I sent it to him and like he ended up, it, he read it and like a month later got back to me and he said, you know what? This is really good. Like there's nothing to develop here, but you should come out and try to be a screenwriter and see if like you can make it. And I had yeah, just you gotten, done it. You, I, you I just got a feel for the odds and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do this book. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to do it. I went back and I happened to, I like I was cleaning out honest to God before I took this job at the action network, I was cleaning out, like some old box in my basement and um, I found the script and I read it and it was fucking terrible. Like awful. <laughs> it was cliche. I did the same thing when I was packing up. 
I was reading, I had to put it down. I couldn't throw it away. I printed this shit out in 02. But I was like, oh my God, dude. Like, take your title page off at least. <laughs> yeah. Honest to God. It was, it's, 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 um, you look back and you like, I can't believe I actually put that out into the world. Yeah. Do you think your friend lied to you? No, I think at the time, like, I was 26 years old, probably, and it was probably good for a dude who was 26 and had never written a TV pilot before. And, like, it was an area nobody was really addressing at the time and sort of had cool moments that were very inside that, um, you know, would take you into a different world. But it wasn't very good. Like, dialogue was crappy and the scene setting was awful and, like, the situations were both at the same time cliched and entirely unrealistic um it was just bad yeah see that's that's kind of my fear is that you know when i did the first um pilot that i that i wrote a couple years ago i was still with an agency and my sports contract was coming up with espn so i kind of felt like you know hey when i when i signed with you guys you know at the time it had been seven years or something i go i really signed with you because you guys are such big players in the television space, which is a huge word, as you know, out here. Um, and I go, I really, I really want to try to kick the tires on this thing. You know, my contract's coming up. Like I could see myself, maybe we could get something done. You know, I, I might even take a break from sports. And they were like, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, look, every, every agent has, there's a reason they're agents, you know, they, unfortunately I, I wish agents just go, no, this sucks. Total waste of time. Resign with ESPN but they never want to do that to you because they're afraid if they say, Hey, this sucks. There's going to be some other agent that's going to pick you off by saying, no, what do you mean? You suck. That pilot's amazing. Like we're, this is a great, there's a need for this in this space. So they told me the first one was okay, but you know, we had to do it all. And I agreed to all the changes because I wanted to see like how far we could go with it. And it was cool, you know, sitting there with HBO Cinemax and pitching. It was, it was cool, but you know, unfortunately our story was a little too basic. And I think that's what kind of gets back to, like when you're writing something, it's, it's very challenging now, I think, because, you know, the, the rules are so different, man. Like one of the examples that somebody used for me was, you know, you look at Breaking Bad and you go, okay, well, how was that pitched? And you go, all right, it's guy, chemist, legendary chemist, really smart. Um, you know, he's never smoked a day in his life, terminal lung cancer, going to die, decides to start cooking meth, but he's also motivated and driven by the fact that his other partners from college that were also really smart, went into this company, killed it. And he's always had this jealousy and felt like, okay, I never went for it. So now I'm going to go for it. And you're like, wow, you know, meth dealing chem teacher, dad, who's going to die in six months. You know, that's just not, that's just not the way shows were when we were growing up. Like I had a friend who's a really accomplished writer out here who pitched some show about like a coming of age kid in high or high school, junior high, or something like that. And then they passed on it. And then all he did was change the timeline of like, it was a jump, back and forth timeline deal. And they were like, this is amazing. And they like picked up the second season and it was the same thing. So sometimes when I write, like, I think my stuff's very straightforward. And sometimes I wonder like, is, is that kind of lost? Can you just not tell some sort of story? Does everybody have to be an alien? Does, does something have to be like Mad Men could have been Mad Men, even if Dom Draper wasn't a war deserter, like it still would have worked, but it probably feels like that if they didn't have this little hook, that there was some sort of mystery about him. Um, you know, it, 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 maybe it doesn't sell, and who knows? Yeah, I think he, he brought that around and pitched it to everybody for years and years. But that's the part that scares me, because even when I can go back and read something that's terrible and go, okay, this sucks, uh, you know, sometimes you hit send on something you think is pretty good, and then, you know, you still feel like you're not there. And that's, that's definitely the scary part. And there's definitely going to be days. Like, I continue to have days where I'll go, man, did you, did you know what you were doing here? Like, are you, did you just think this was going to be cool and you were going to move to LA and like, man, I'm going to make TV shows. Like, I'm not doing this to tell girls at Starbucks that I'm a TV producer. <laughs> I'm doing it because, you know, I'm doing it because I, I want to be good at it. Just like, you know, I thought I was pretty good at what I did before, you know? Well, that's the risk. That's the, that's, that's the, you bet your life component to all of this, right? Is yeah. you actually, normally I do this interview with people and they have come out the other side and they get like, what worked and what didn't, and they're happy to have yeah. taken the risk. You are smack dab in the middle of it. No, so, I mean, you know, but I'm not, I'm not freaking out. Like people who called me the second week after I had left, you know, ESPN, you know, that first week's easy because I would have been off. 
bowl games, holidays, the whole deal. And then that first week of January, you know, I'm sitting in front of a laptop and you're two pages in, <laughs> you're going, maybe I should add another paragraph about the temperature. Uh, <laughs> That is the lonely. That is the loneliest place in the world, right there. Yeah, you know, and I live by myself. I'm in Hartford. I was like, I could guess I could work out again today. Um, and you know, you get there. I mean, you you, you kind of get there, and I, you know, that's the that's the thing is is that you know, I was pretty close to maybe being a general contractor. Uh, I even dabbled in health insurance consulting. Don't even ask. And. I was like, you know, if I don't try to do the sports thing, I'm, I'll probably divorce my wife at like 35 and freak out, like move to Cabo. She'll get the house. And um, I go, so I need, I need to, I need to try this. And so if I just stayed at ESPN and maybe, you know, settled down with a cute girl from the gym in Hartford, you know, I probably would have divorced her at 50 and moved out here and tried to do this anyway. So... This is really more a real estate play where I'm not just exactly. going to lose half. Yeah. I mean, I look at this as I'm already, I've already recouped the half I was going to lose in a divorce had I just stayed in Hartford. So really, I'm, I've already really won. costing you is a house in Manhattan Beach and a, and a um, membership to Equinox. Yeah, right. Because my dad did drop that on me. He goes, do you think if you're successful with this, that in five years you'll say, you know, I'm just, I'm not really happy and I, I need to try something new. <laughs> so well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if I've been killing it, killing it at ESPN, and I mean like a, a chosen one, a made man, maybe I don't do this. And maybe if I'd gotten that, then I'd miss out on all the great things that are going to happen here. Or, you know, I mean, I, I'm just too realistic. Like I could sit here and do like the t-shirt, no days off, do your job, you know, shark attack, whatever, and say, oh, I'm never, I'm never going to fail. I'm never going to fail. I'm determined. Nobody wants it as much as me. I'm going to outwork everybody. Like, that's all bullshit. Like, it's either going to come up with a great idea and somebody's going to like me and go, yeah, I want to work with this dude, or I'm not. And I'm okay with it. Well, that's also the thing about that job or writing books or anything in a creative space. You could outwork anybody. You could be twice as talented as somebody else. So much of that is about right book, right show, right idea, right time, right place. You know, like, look, Game of Thrones was not a hit. The first eight episodes it aired. I gave up on it. I they like, gave up on it. It took off. I could put subtitles on. I was like, what the hell did that guy say? This dude's a lord too. You know, I was so confused. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, keep going, because that's your guy. No, but the point is, like, then all of a sudden, they chop the guy's heads off, head off, and it's a game-changing television program that completely changes how people treat the heroes in a show and treat characters in a show and treat the relationship with the audience, because all of a sudden, it's not an imperative that the hero survive every single element of every single scene. <laughs> Right, because in the 80s and 90s, we wouldn't have gotten that, you know, like all that stuff started changing. And Brett Martin, who wrote this unbelievable book on just the evolution of television, I think it's Difficult Men. Uh, he's this writer. I think he's down in New Orleans all the time. At least I follow him on Twitter. And he's he's constantly tweeting about food down there. And he's been really nice to me. And we DM'd a little bit. And I told him what I was trying to do. And he was kind of like, a, hey, man, good luck. It's tough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm like, OK, OK, thank you. Uh, but it's just, if you're interested in this stuff, it's incredible because it just goes through how the rules change with television, that we started rooting for the bad guys. And we knew he was the bad guy. Like, we were okay. Like, gets into the shield and, you know, spends a lot of time on The Wire and The Sopranos and kind of how Oz started this thing. But you're so right in pointing out the Ned Stark thing because Ned Stark, like, growing up, Game of Thrones, you go, uh, no, Ned, like the guy from Lord of the Rings, he's a huge star. We have to keep him alive for five seasons. You know, we got to keep that dude alive. And, you know, same thing with Joffrey. Uh, we got to keep, you know, it, it's funny because one of the guys that I met up with from HBO Cinemax after we failed our, our pitch a couple years ago, he, uh, I said, what do we do wrong? And I'll never forget his quote. He's like, hey, man, we got shows about like freaking dragons and dudes that disappear. Like, congrats on your college drama, but <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you see the dragons? 
Seriously. Did you see the dragons? And so then you're like, okay, well, what can I come up with? It's so crazy. Like, what? All right, I'll start with dragons, but then it'll be from the future, but they don't know that it's from the future. And then season two, mind blown, we're not even on earth. And you're like, yeah, that'll work. And it'll take place in high school, small West Texas high school. Uh, So, you know, um, dude, your story about one of the guys, one of the creators of Game of Thrones is so funny when you told me that at dinner, but I've repeated that to my friends. Can you share that with you? Because it's so funny that you grew up with one of the dudes. Yeah. uh, Dan Weiss, D.B. Weiss, who's one of the creators of Game of Thrones. Um, And for those that don't know, like the end inside the episode, he's the guy with the glasses in the beginning. So people understand yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we totally grew up together. We were, you know, really good friends growing up in high school, like a group of 10 of us. We're really good friends. We're all still really good friends. I just, you know, he just got this big Star Wars deal. I was just emailing with him about it. Like, um, crazy talented guy. Like, uh, in high school, you know, we would all hang out at his house. And he was not a huge, he's not a sports guy at all. And we would like, play basketball in his driveway um, and he was up in his room writing novels. Like he wrote this, you know, I remember reading a novel he wrote when we were in high school about like, you know, kids in suburban town. Right. And then he and I actually lived together in New York after college, we both moved to New York. And uh, for that summer we lived together and um, he had written a novel about like werewolves. That was just amazing. And like, (laughs) my friends, I'd be like, The werewolf you know, line kills like, me every time. It kills me. Yeah, it's like, I'm like, you guys don't get it. He is playing a different game than the rest of us. Like, he is out there and super creative. And uh, we all knew, like, he was, he was, you know, a really smart guy in high school, obviously. But um, it was, uh, you know, he, he was just always writing these things that were so beyond the realm of reality. And um, clearly that has now manifested itself into, you know, the most popular television franchise in world history. And, um, boy, he's talented. And like, that's, but that's also like, welcome to it, brother. That's sort of the game that you're trying to play right now. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing you look at and you just go, like, can you imagine having to sit down and go, okay, you got to write out this script. And, uh, I mean, obviously they had the books to kind of go off there a little bit, but you know, that stuff, I forget it. I mean, forget it. Like, you know, I'm writing about Martha's Vineyard in the wintertime, a world that nobody knows. You know, there's no dragons. But right, but the, also, the rules like, are... those things do well, too. Like, there, there, there are plenty of dramas that are not steeped in fantasy that do well. You just, it, if you're going to write a drama about, like, Martha's Vineyard in the wintertime, you've got to have an anti-hero. Like, it can't be some dude who's, you know, it's like, it's got to be a guy who people might have to hate. Oh, no, they're not going to like him, but they're going to struggle yeah, with trying to figure out, like, okay, is this guy truly evil or is he somebody who's trying to get his life together and that's you know i started it with some spot and you know i I started in montana and then you know the guy that i'm working with was like so what are you an expert on montana you went there for like three days it's like well uh yeah that's a good point so you know i change it to something i grew up because you know the funny thing about growing up in martha's vineyard and then meeting people is they're like oh must be nice and you go you know no one has any idea of what the vineyard is the vineyard is this self-sustained community where all class levels are represented. Um, people don't understand that it's a lot more diverse than you realize. And when you show up, everybody's surprised that you don't have a sweater tied around your neck and, you know, a sloop, 22 foot sloop out back, you know, or multiple right. sloops. Uh, it's just not the way it works. And, you know, in the island, it's, in the winter is rough. It's depressing. It's weird, you know? And I was, I did it. I was in it for a couple of winters when I thought like, oh shit, like this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to be one of these guys. I'm going to show up to the job site, bitch about the pass game on Monday. And then well, I guess I wouldn't have too much to complain about the last decade and a half, but you understand the point. So yeah, you know, that's, that's the funny thing too, is like when I'll watch Game of Thrones, because I'm rewatching it again now, I go, you know, this can be about this mystical world and who's going to be the king and all this crazy stuff. But uh, the premise is still the same everybody wants to be king. So I have to figure out, okay, what does everybody want? You know, what is, what, what's, what's the problem? And is there a solution? And are any of these people interesting? And I think they are. 
like I think they are, but I also grew up around it. But I also think it's a world that would surprise a lot of people because it's a real problem. I'm Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard. Here it is like one of the most desirable places in the country. And the people that grew up there, the people that take care of it year round can't really afford to stay there anymore. That's a huge problem. So what happens now? Today? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, today, today, I haven't officially moved out here yet. I'm waiting to close on the place, but I'm just going to keep plugging away. Uh, you know, I've given myself, I have a timeline in my head. I don't want to hold myself to any number here, but I'm, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to be like, I'm done with sports because it's just not. Like, I still think, I talked to a writer the other day and he said, you know, what do you think you'll do with sports? I said, I still think I do a podcast once a week with ESPN or, you know, if I'm, if I'm not. And like, why wouldn't I, you know, because I, I still have these nights where I'm watching so much NBA. I mean, I'm still watching as much NBA as I was before. And I think I'll still prepare for the draft the way I have before because I love the draft. And I'm sure I can do all of these things because I don't have the daily show that is, you know, I believe like the most time consuming thing. I mean, unless you're just a mail and in guy, you don't give a crap and you just go, I'm going to take calls for four hours and show up 15 minutes before the show starts. But the way I did the radio show, I could, I could never do it that way. So this is this weird freedom that I don't know. I, I feel different. I feel happy. And um, I'm really pumped to uh, try to make this work. Cause I, I don't know. I just have this weird feeling like deep down, eventually it's going to work. So I'm not going to hold myself to some sort of timeline where it's like, okay, in one year, if you haven't done anything, you have to leave. Like, what if I like it here and I do something else? <laughs> so yeah, I'm not going to worry you about can't, it. You can't do any of these things like with a timeline like that, because what happens is, you know, there's a sunk cost when you do that. And so you, you sometimes, falsely account for the time you've spent and saying, I can't give up this time, but you've already spent the time. So it's gone. Um, you just know, like in that world, the time isn't necessarily the thing. And so you can't say it's going to be a five-year thing or a two-year thing or a 12-month thing because you don't know what the next day is going to bring in an area where the work doesn't always pay off in sort of a linear equation. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're totally right. You know, it could be, it could be a worsening year where I go, wow, you know, I'm further away than I thought, but do I still like waking up every day and trying to think about this stuff? Yeah. If I, but if I hate it, then I won't do it. You know, uh, and people always ask me about why I'm not married. And I guess, I guess it's kind of weird to be like, I just am so happy that I don't have somebody telling me, Hey, what are you going to do if this doesn't work? You know, or, Oh, you're going to write again today? Or, oh, you said you were going to give it a year. I'm impersonating the worst wife ever right now. But, I was uh, going to say, like, your impression of marriage is not actually, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, my, like, my wife has supported me at every single, like, stupid idea I've ever taken. Hey, honey, we're going to, I'm going to be commander in chief of the magazine and we're going to move from our very happy life in Montclair, New Jersey to the middle of Connecticut. We don't, we don't know anybody. Hey, honey, I'm going to quit my job making a ridiculous amount of money at ESPN to go work in this startup. What do you think of that? Oh, and by the way, my job's going to be in New York. Do we think we should move back or stay in the middle of Connecticut? Um, you can get that kind of support, too. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that, that's weird is that maybe this was like the mental break. And then, you know, ESPN and I go, hey, you know, we both still like each other. and There's a role. And I go, yeah, I kind of miss it. And, you know, that's why... I, it's been really cool that the that the breakup isn't official yet because the contract still runs and I'm still doing the podcast. Hey, look, if I could marry now and, and left the money, you know, I, that's that would have been a weird conversation with a wife. She would have gone, "Are you serious? We're really doing this?" Oh yeah. You know, and you know, then you're like, "Yeah, good point. I guess I'll stay. Pick out something nicer in Hartford." Which, by the way, wouldn't have been horrible. Like those are the things. Like you. No, it isn't. You're right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you're, you're smart to point that out because, you know, a, a challenging life at ESPN is still a great life. It just, I've never lived outside of New England and I was in this area of the South Bay in LA for so long, just checking it out. And I go, you know, just do it. Just do it. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You don't like it? Okay. And I just don't see why I'm not going to like it. Well, the good news is, the good news is you're not married or divorced, and so you don't really have anyone to let down except yourself. Yeah, and, I, and luckily I got this new house prior to meeting somebody who was my inspiration when I accept some award, an award show, you know, 
uh, unless I say single, that would be, wouldn't that be legendary? Just get up there and be like, I have no one to thank because no one <laughs> except me. <laughs> no one was my inspiration. No one guided me. I owe none of you nothing, or I owe all of you nothing. I am my own leave. man. You yeah. can all suck it. Yeah, you can do it on your on your own. It, it, uh, uh, never mind. I, I lost. I lost my. I just started thinking about being up there and laughing because I wouldn't. I would. Who would want to be that big of a jerk? I would have done that oh. maybe at thirty, but I wasn't successful enough. Well, I will tell you when my buddy Dan accepted an Emmy, like he talked about Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And I emailed him. I'm like, I'm replaying it for my son because my son's a huge Dungeons and Dragons kid. And so like, I keep like, you know, he's met Dan and like, they've talked about the Game of Thrones books together. And, um, and like, I loved seeing Dan talk about that on television because maybe my kid will get inspired to sort of figure out ways to use Dungeons and Dragons in a way other than sort of just playing the game. Um, Ryan Rosillo, you're out in LA. You can go make it as a television writer. Uh, I'm excited for you. I think it's going to be great. Either way, it's going to work out. I really do feel that way. And I don't know that anybody would call me Tony Robbins. Uh, that That's spent a lot of time with me. But um, I don't know, man. Every time I was out here, I get I get super motivated. And, you know, I'll do, I'll do a million fake lunches for the one that works. So I can't wait. That is a life's lesson. A million fake lunches for the one that works. 